Stay tuned for the Lynch Shop. Today, I'm airing an interview with musician, recording engineer, record producer, Val Garay. Although his father was a well-known singer and actor, and his uncle was a phenomenal orchestral guitar player, as a young man, Val did not think of making a life with music. But when he did, he did it with a vengeance. It's a fascinating story, so hang on. Here come the show. Welcome to The Lynn Show. The Lynn Show is about being the person you really are. Not the person you think you have to be. Not the person other people are. Not the person someone told you you had to be or even told you you were. Not even the person you may currently think you are. But the person you really are. Unfortunately, too many people have experiences in their childhoods which discourage them from being the person they really are. In my shows, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art because when you listen to them, you can hear what it sounds like to be the person you really are. And in my interview with, and in my interview with Val, you can hear how although it took him a while 
to realize that making a life with music was what he was meant to do, when you listen to him, you have no doubt that he is doing exactly what he was meant to do. Here now is Val Garay. Okay, I'm here with Val Garay, and I'm explaining to Val that I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. Mm. And it is clear to me, anyway, that the art to which you have given your life and made your living is the art of music. That's pretty correct. Yeah, good. Okay, so I only ask one question, and it is, can you tell me the very first time in your life when music drew you, called you, seemed attractive to you, any of that? Interesting question. My father was a singer and an actor. He starred in the third movie that Walt Disney did called The Three Caballeros, where he was Panchito the Parrot and sang all the songs in the movie and uh, headlined all the biggest nightclubs all over the United States. And his closest friend for 30 years was Errol Flynn, and he did 30 films. And my uncle was a phenomenal orchestral guitar player who always had a trio that played every weekend all over the Bay Area when I was growing up and he was the manager of my first band. Okay, run me back to your earliest memory that has to do with music. I was fairly infatuated with Elvis Presley and that whole explosion. Um, Did you sing? Not a lot then. I played guitar as a kid, but not a lot. And, you know, I just loved songs. I loved music. And I was always telling my father what songs he should learn. So my father was a beautiful Latin tenor, gorgeous voice, beautiful guy. Mm -hmm. So um, when did you start to play the guitar? When I was about 10 or 11. Do you remember what triggered your desire to play the guitar? Yeah, my uncle was a wonderful guitar player. And, you know, we'd have these family get-togethers where, you know, he and my father would get up and do a couple songs, and it would just always seem like fun to me. So I asked him to start teaching me how to play, and he did. So, okay, so you're playing guitar, and Elvis Presley comes along, and you discover rock and roll. And then what happens? Not really a lot. All through high school, I played in a couple of country bands that we were like hiding in the closet in the garage because country music in the 50s wasn't no. something you do in Northern California. But Well, so how did you discover country music? Um, kind of through Ray Charles, uh, you know, his yeah. first big album. Because all the songs that he did were country songs in yes. that album, you know, um, or most of them. Um, and I fell in love with the style and his, you know, this kind of songs and the melodic structure, and I enjoyed that part of it. So I just sort of fiddled around, played different, a couple different bands, and never really pursued anything musically. And then I got out of high school, and then I went to uh, Stanford School of Medicine in college. Back up a little bit. <laughs> I, I'm thinking oh, yeah. that it, that it doesn't look like in your early life you were thinking about a career in music. It oh, no. I wasn't thinking about it at all. Um, and mainly because it was my father who kind of designated everything in that sense. He would say, you know, because he was a known celebrity in the world he lived in, and everywhere that I went with him as a child, you know, they were always like, well, what is your son going to do? And uh, he's going to be a doctor. Stay out of the music business. He's not doing anything to do with that. You know, wow. how, how most parents are when they're in a business that's as difficult as entertainment is. Yes. Um, you know, plus he was on the road probably 250 days a year. I... So I never really saw him much except for Christmas and Easter and sometimes he'd come in on my birthday and stuff like that. But So, you know... So um, are, are you saying that, that you went... That he, you well, went... They, everybody would ask him, what's your son going to do? And he'd say he's going to be a doctor. So 
that kind of set the the pattern for where where I was supposed to head. And then when I finally um, got accepted, because uh, I got a scholarship to wow. Stanford School of Medicine, mm-hmm. and um, I went through my undergrad for four years, and I was in my second year of graduate school when I met a cocktail waitress who I was pretty infatuated with, and she worked in a popular bar in the Bay Area in San Mateo, and she convinced me to come in one night to see this band, Wally Cox and Little E, two black guys that did R&B, they were great. I got up and sat in with them, and it just was magical to me. I mean, to having people, you know, enjoy you just performing. So then I decided to form my own band, which I did, and we played all over the peninsula and San Francisco, and then we started traveling, went to Seattle and to Hawaii, and, you know, it was 1965, and, you know, all you did was covers of British bands. Ah, okay, all right. And um, (laughs) what did your father say? Uh, he was pretty perplexed. He was but I, I, perplexed. You know, this is an interesting term yeah, to use. Yeah, he was pretty perplexed. But I, I'll tell you, many years later, uh, the night that I w- was uh, at the Grammys and won all those Grammys for Betty Davis Ice, he called me the next day and he said, I'll never question you again. Uh, yes. So it was kind of nice. Um, well, okay, so now I have you play, um, playing in a band, doing covers um, in 1965. Mm-hmm. So what happens then? Well, you know, when you get, when you get in a band with f- there's five guys and you, your life is dependent on four other people, it gets kind of disruptive. And, and I kept, kept being the visionary. I kept seeing things bigger than that they could ever envision. And so at some point I realized they were holding me back and I left and moved to Los Angeles and started the same thing all over again. Okay, so you came to L.A. Did you know anybody here? Well, yes, I did. Um, it's interesting because a dear friend of mine who was a bass player in a well-known local band in San Francisco in that period of time, uh, the band was called The Vegetables, which later became The Mojo Men, which had a hit called Sit Down, I Think I Love You. Rick was in that band, and he was a bass player, and he was a songwriter, so he and I used to do these demos in his garage in San Bruno, and we did a demo of this song that we sent to Los Angeles to Paul Revere and the Raiders, hoping that they would cut it, and they got, we got a call from their manager who said, love the song, we got to rewrite a bunch of it, we want half the, the writing credit and all the publishing, and so... <laughs> Rick, of course, said sure, and they cut it, and it was their first hit called Just Like Me, and they copied the record, the, the demo we did, no, they yeah. didn't change a thing. So Rick moved to Los Angeles, so I knew him, and I drove to Los Angeles with a suitcase and a guitar and never came back. What did you do when you arrived? I called my father up, who was living down here, and I moved in with him and his new wife. Uh-huh. Slept on the couch for about two months. And, you know, as you start getting into the community, I got dialed in with some friends and I moved into an apartment over in Formosa that was Dickie Davis, who was the road manager of the Buffalo Springfield, and Neil Young. We all shared this apartment. Then I moved up into Laurel Canyon to this house where this other band was living and uh, lived there for about eight months. And then they had a band come from San Diego that slept on the floor for six months, and that was the Iron Butterfly. And then I started another band with uh, some really no- well-known musicians in L.A. and got signed to uh, Ode Records by Lou Adler. 
you know, made a record that, you know, did two singles and one got on the radio right away, a song that I wrote and got in a big lawsuit and it's a whole other story, but that kind of snuffed the record and then, so then that group kind of broke up and, and, and then, so when that kind of fell apart, that, that's when I started getting kind of disillusioned with the whole band business and having made that record and a number of other things at the Sound Factory in Hollywood, and the owner, Dave Hassinger, who at the time was one of the most famous engineers and owned the studio, said to me one day, you know, he said, you got a great pair of ears, why don't you come to work for me? So uh, I said, okay. I work, work for, for him, him as... Learning to be an engineer. I mean, I'd always had a hand in it, but I'd never really made a, an attempt at doing that for a living. So I, I signed on for a hundred bucks a week and... and um, Worked with him for six months, sitting in the back of the room, watching and learning. And, you know, he said, told me the first day, he said, don't ask me any questions for three months. I want you to just watch. Right. So he, he was an amazing engineer and had made amazing records. I mean, Satisfaction, Under My Thumb, all the great Rolling Stones records that you thought were done in England were all done at RCA Studios in Hollywood, where he was a staff engineer, and he did them. Ah. You know, 19th Nervous Breakdown, Under My Thumb, Going Home, all those classic Stones records. He did the first two Airplane records, the first three J Grateful Dead records. He did Sam Cooke. He did The Monkees, Last Train to Clarksville. I mean, the guy was yeah. amazing. And oddly enough, he wins a Grammy for The Chipmunks. <laughs> Alvin and I The Chipmunks. I remember it very yeah. well, yeah. Anyway, right. so uh, I went to work for him, and then about six months later, my friend Don Boudet, who was a writer not a songwriter, a writer, called me up and said, you know, the guy who owns Cap Records wanted him to produce a record. And he said, I don't know how to do anything like that, but I want you to work with me on this and we'll do it. And I said, okay, fine. So he brought the band in and it was my first client uh, in the Sound Factory and we, you know, cut the whole album and sure enough, the single took off and was a huge hit. It was a, the band was called El Chicano, and the single was a cover of Brown Eyed Girl ah. that went to, like, number four. Wow. So that was kind of the beginning, and then Linda came in to work with Dave uh, Hassinger, and he was, like, 55 or so at that time and kind of didn't want to do it anymore, so he kept pawning her off on me. Wow. And finally... After about a week of him not showing up and me standing there being the guy, uh, they called him up and said, uh, we like Val, we'll stay with him. You don't have to come <laughs> in anymore. And so then I did Heart Like a Wheel, which had two number one singles, and the album went to number one, and it just took off from there. Right, right. And that was 1976. And here we are 30 years later? 30 years, what? 40 years? 86, 96, 06, 16, 42 years later. 42 years later, right. Yeah. And, um, and so, essentially, this is what you've been doing. And doing Well, so that part was the, was the growing of the en engineering part of it. Ah. And, uh, oh, you were just engineering yes, for just, her. Oh, I yeah. didn't realize. Oh, yeah, but... But during all that, right. having been in bands, having yeah. been songwriting all my life, right. having been playing guitar, everything that I learned and brought to the table, aside from the engineering thing, was on the production side. So after you know a very short period of time, I started being one of the first engineers to get royalties on projects that I did with all these famous artists because 
You know, I contributed more than just... Because it, you were uh, also producing, if you, even if you didn't call it that. Even if I wasn't the producer. The tongue, right. Yeah. Even if you, if you, right. right, you didn't have the title. And then I got you. hired by Clive Davis. Suddenly I became Clive's boy. So he was calling me up from Aristotle going, you got to do this one for me and you got to finish that record for me. And, and then he had this band in England called Mr. Big that... Uh, had been working with Roy Thomas Baker and they had a falling out so he said you got to go to England and finish this record so I did and the, and the single that I did with them went to number one in England and just stayed at number one for like six or eight weeks and then I redid the uh, Right Time of the Night with Jennifer Warren's and then I did Eric Carmen's Boats Against the Current and now it's all building towards me starting to produce so then my friend Frankie Rand, who ran Epic on the West Coast, called me up and he said, listen, I signed Randy Meisner, would you be interested in producing his solo record? And I said, sure. So I got together with Randy and we worked on that and then uh, that had two top five singles in it. And then because of that, I get a call from uh, Jim Mazza at EMI America, which was a label he started under the capital EMI banner. And he signed Kim Carnes, uh, was the first artist without even having a label, really. And he said, you know, she's been working with this producer and she doesn't like him. Would you be interested in finishing this record for her? The record was called Romance Dance and and the song was um, More Love, the Smokey Robinson cover she did, which went at top five. So when I finished that album and mixed the single for her and it was a big hit, she said, you know, I want you to do my next record. I said, okay, one condition. I said, you let me bring material into the record. And she said, fine. Because she was a very established, well-known songwriter. She'd written hits for everybody. I mean, she wrote uh, Don't Fall in Love with the Dreamer, that whole album for Kenny Rogers, and sang on it with him, um, which was a big hit. She wrote a a big song for Barbara Streisand. She wrote a number one record, country record, for Reba McIntyre and Vince Gill called The Heart Won't Lie. So she was a, a well-established songwriter. But in my guesstimation, she never could write stuff for herself. She'd already done four albums and you know, hadn't had any real success. So in the process of working on this album, I got a call from Donna Weiss, who was a, a songwriter in, in L.A. that I'd known for a long time, and she called me up. She said, I have a wonderful new song that I wrote with, and I can't think of the guy she wrote it with, who's also a famous songwriter. But she said, I want to come over to record one and play it for you. And I said, okay, fine. So I called Kim up. She went over. We sat in my office. Donna came over, played the song with him, and he didn't like it. And uh, she said, well, you know, I have this other song that uh, I gave to Kim on her last album to that producer, but he wanted all the publishing, so I wouldn't give it to him. And so he liked it. She'd heard it and said she liked it, and then it all went away. And I said, well, let me hear the song. So she played it for me. And I said, yeah, I love that. I love the lyrics. Let me hang on. Long story short, we played around with it, rearranged it. Como came up with a great lick to run through the whole song, and ba-boom, 30 million records. <laughs> record of the year song of the year all these Grammys and you know now I'm pretty much established as a producer okay. and can no longer do the other part of engineering for other people even though I was getting paid fabulously and then um, I got a call from Mazza again who's now over at Capitol and he said 
I got this band on Capitol that's had two albums and no hits, and he said, how would you like to work with him? And, and he said, I'm sure you've heard of him. And I said, what's the name of the band? He said, The Motels. I said, oh yeah, they're fantastic. I never heard a note. <laughs> so Martha came over to the studio. She was the singer and the songwriter, and she said to me, I don't understand why I'm here because you make Linda Ronstadt records and I'm in a punk band. And I said, darling, it's music, you know. <laughs> so um, we started working together. We did a whole album that uh, we gave to Capitol and they rejected it because at the time her boyfriend was the lead guitar player in the band and he was the guiding force making me make a record the way he wanted to make it, not the way I wanted to make it. And it just, it had all the right songs. I mean, only The Lonely was in the record, but wow. Capitol said, we don't hear a single and we don't like the way the record sounds. Would you consider redoing it again? And so I said to her at that point, uh, fire me and get somebody else or I'm going to bring in players that can play and we're going to cut this the right way. So she broke up with her oh, boyfriend, boyfriend, threw him out. <laughs> and I brought in all the guys that I've been using, Craig Cramp and Craig, so Craig Hull and Steve Goldstein and that was the motels. And we went in and I cut Only the Lonely five or six different times till I got it the way I wanted. And then that became a big hit and then we spent another year writing and woodshedding coming up with the next single for the next album which took a year to come up with and that was suddenly last summer and then that was a big hit and then um, I, at that point I was managing her as well because she fired her manager about a week after Only the Lonely came out and she was calling me every day going what do I do about this and I'm like Martha get a manager and she goes you're going to manage me and I'm like I don't want to do that but I ended up getting talked into it so now it's like two or three years down the road and I said to her, you got one more album to do with Capitol, I said, and you can do a greatest hits with two new tracks and we'll renegotiate your contract for a million or two. And she called me up the next day and said, I'm, gonna, I'm firing you, I want to stay with my boys. <laughs> so she fired me. And then she went into the studio about three months later with another producer and they cut a Motel's record that's stiffed. And I said to her in, in the process, I said, you can do the greatest hits, and then I said, you should do a solo record. And she that's what prompted her to say, no, I'm staying with my boys. Right. I'm not going to do that. So then she did the Motel's record that bombed, and then she did a solo record that bombed, and then Capital dropped her. And you're having a glorious time. Yes? No? Right? Yeah, I guess you could call it a glorious time. I mean, I, I loved what I did, so... Is there anything else you would have wanted to do? Mm, you mean besides make music? I... Mm, not really. So are you working on anything now? Oh yeah, I'm working on right now. I'm working with a 15-year-old who's amazing. Oh yeah. Yeah, she was brought to me, um, and she has a million followers, and she's as good as Linda Ronstadt. So wow. we decided to go in and cut a Linda Ronstadt song. We're doing Blue Bayou. Yeah, but she can sing that as good as Linda did. Wow. And then I just finished this double platinum artist out of Canada. Is Love. Uh, I did eight songs with him. I just did a track with uh, Jason Sheff, who know. is the lead singer of Chicago for the last 30 years. So this is, so you're just going to ride this and... They, they won't let me do it They anymore. won't let you do it anymore. You, you will just go on forever. Yeah, well, if I can. I think it's clear that you found the place that you belong. Yeah, I'm very fortunate in that sense. I found something that I love to do and I'm really good at it. So. Yes. That's very fortunate. That's very fortunate. And I mean, actually, so I, when I come into work, I don't feel like I'm working. I'm having a great time. You know? Yeah, and you're answering my last question. Yeah. 
which is having given a life to this work, and you really have given a life to this work, what yes. would you say about it? And is there anything else you would say about what it was like to give your life to this work, to be the person who creates, helps a per person create, use their work to create themselves? Yeah, it's like I say this to people, you know, what's so amazing about what I do is I walk in a room with air. Yes, and yeah, And I leave right. with the product. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's right. But, but really, that's what you've been doing. You've been creating careers for people. You've been... Yeah, I mean, Joanna Hall, who's a dear friend of mine. Do you know who she is? I don't. Okay. Joanna Hall is an amazing songwriter, lyricist. Mm -hmm. And she was John Hall's other half for many years. Yes. And John Hall was in a band called Orleans. Yeah. And so Joanna wrote Still the One. She wrote Dance With Me. She wrote all these amazing songs. And she says on a Facebook post the other day, she goes, my nickname for him was Valuable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's lovely. Yeah. It's so lovely. So I'm going to ask it again. Having given your life to a career which is a support team and the creator of the team, what would you say about what that's like? Just something I show up every day and pull off. Do it off. again. <laughs> you know? Do it again. Yeah, right. It's lovely, Val. Yeah. Well, that's a great place to stop. Thank you so much, Val Garay. It is my hope that when you listen to Val and to the other artists that I interview, you can hear what it sounds like to be the person you really are to be what therapists call congruent. And I hope that you will be asking yourself, is this how I feel about my life? Am I the person that I really know I was meant to be? Am I in sync with my life? Am I spending my life doing things that I hope to go on doing as long as they'll let me? Well, I certainly hope that you are. But if you are not, it is the message of the Lynn Show that it may not be too late to recover what you might have had to leave behind. It may not be too late to be the person you really are. As always, I hope you got something from this show that you can use. Maybe you learned something that you didn't know. Maybe something amused you or intrigued you. Or maybe something inspired you to pursue the person you really are. You see, I'm getting older My hair is turning gray Oh, you see my face and figure I've both seen better days Well, I won't be retiring I won't slip out of sight, no I will not go gentle into that good night I won't go with a whimper I am going with a bang Life's a song I keep on singing Not a tune that I once sang I just keep returning Like some goddamn
time has come and gone Oh, won't I please get off the stage Let someone else get on Well, I, I won't be relegated Or leave without a fight, no I will not go gentle Into that good night Got some tang, so you won't hear me simper. I may have gotten. 